0: Production.
1: Welcome back to Up Close, Conversations with Modern Veterans. This is Episode 3. Our recruits joined the ADF for a variety of reasons, both personal and professional. But the nature of their roles would change as Australia went to war. This next phase would test them and their families.
2: You remember August 1990? Uh, Saddam Hussein invaded Q8. Actually, had to look on the map where Q8 and that and and Iraq was because I, I wasn't particularly savvy. Because once again, I was still enjoying life. Suddenly, August, um, we were sitting in our crew room, and this TV thing came on, and there there was our, our prime minister at the time, Bob Hawke, saying we're going. There was oh, what are we going to do next? That's when the the next round came up, and they decided to, the government decided to send HMAS Sydney and HMAS Brisbane to join that um that, that were already up there. So I put my hand up and um, suddenly when we started doing this training to go to sea, things changed. There was a whole different change because there was rumours in the Middle East of, uh, of gas attack and um, um, biological warfare and things like that. So our role in that stage was um, to provide a screen for the aircraft carriers. So we got put into the um, part of the screen originally for uh, H- uh, USS Midway. Now, I, I did a couple of deployments um, to lov- lovely places like Southeast Asia and to um, New Zealand and around Australia and, and back working on the squadron, back to playing my rugby every weekend, which is a great thing. Um, then we're, doing, we're also doing peacekeeping in the Pacific. So on HMAS Melbourne in 2001, uh, we were off um, Honiara off, um, in the Guadalcanal. So it wasn't until um, on the you know, September 11th, that's the time I used to talk to my wife on the um, this magic thing called email. So we talked to each other and she she comes and said, this has just happened on TV and I don't believe it's happened. And she said, and I said, no, and she's wrote me again. And as she's writing to me, she says, a second one has just gone into the um, World Trade Center. And at that point, um, suddenly that's when the world changed. I had people under me who looked up to me for answers because I knew everything apparently, when, and I look back when I was young, looking up at these old people. I'm one of the old people now, with people looking up to me because I've got all the answers. Apparently, <laughs> we actually took two seahawks on that um, deployment. So I still had a chief above me, but I was at the the, the senior management level in, in that respect. So I'd looked after the the maintenance of the aircraft, uh, managing the the my troops were under me who did the the hard yards. My days of getting my hands greasy on, a, on an aircraft were just beyond that.
1: Campbell was then serving on the anti-submarine frigate the HMAS
2: Stewart. HMAS Stewart was um well it's an FF8 so it's, it's, a, it's a helicopter frigate one of the one of the ANSAC class uh frigates that we um we got and uh Stuart was the third one and th- that we'd got. And 180 crew? Yeah, about 180 crew, um, and that sometimes swelled up. depends on operational deployments, up to about 200. In 2001, I, I, was, I went, left Melbourne, went on HMA Sydney, and then we went straight up to the Gulf after um, September 11th. And part of that, because we knew the focus was on Afghanistan and Iraq, obviously Afghanistan's landlocked, but um, part of the focus was to go up there. So, so we went back to that um, operational footy rather than that that, that almost um, uh, routine going back and forth to the Gulf. So I went from Melbourne to HMAC. That's 2001, and I spent time up there, 2001, 2002, once again with the unknown because we didn't know who these terrorists and where they'd come from, where they'd come from, yeah, you know, they said Afghanistan was uh, was involved. They said Iraq. They also said Pakistan. There was a whole heap. we didn't know where there was going there. And Once again, predominantly that was to stop smugglers. So that was that was my second deployment. Now I'm in my my third one. I'm in the chief role, so I'm the senior of the sailors of my crew, uh, the aircraft crew. And my challenge there was to get my young people who had been in the same spot I was in in 1990 was to get them to say, this is real, we've, we've got to play this, we've got to do this thing. We're not going up there just to get a heap of money or get a medal. and once you enter that gulf, going into the Straits for moves people are looking at you as you go through. And, and there was a lot of young crew as well and we had a lot of meetings with um, the Chief and with the Chief's Mess, which is predominantly the, the senior of the sailors um, on the ship and the CO to get people into this footing that we are going operational. Every time I've gone to the Middle East, it's, it's under different um, – for different reasons. By the time I went in 2004, we'd gone back into Iraq. I, I could see people were going to have the same discussions that we had in 2001 or 1990, and it was almost like there's people out there who'd never been there before were trying to reinvent the wheel. And I, and I was getting a bit frustrated at times with people trying to reinvent the wheel instead of trying to listen to people who had been there before. That's always a challenge. We get sent to places. We signed up, even if it was a 15-and-a-half-year-old. I put my hand on a Bible and said, "I, the person, I will do this. The job is doesn't matter who's in government, they'll put us in harm's way. When you're there, it's about just doing our job that we are trained to do. It's when we come back that I, I want the government more to look after us. The mission was to um, head right up into the, the, the northern Arabian Gulf where there's two, um, there's two oil rigs. There's ABOT and KBOT. They're about a kilometre off the coast of Q8. They have things like, I mean, four super tankers. Imagine, I don't think I need to describe the size of a super tanker. Four super tankers will rock up. Four of them will dock on, on each um, oil rig, and about two days later they're full and they're off. So you can imagine how much oil is flowing from the mainland out to these two oil rigs. So we we're protecting that little waterway that goes into Q8. There's a small area from Iraq of, of waterway. But the main job was to protect those oil rigs because we didn't want... Uh, there was threat of um, terrorist attack on those, those oil rigs. Fishing is a predominant um, trade up there. So you have these uh, local uh, boats called dows that come out. Big, they're, they're like big wooden fishing, fishing boats that all come out. And where the, uh, the oil rigs are, but it's a, it's a great area for fishing. So at night, you'd see dozens of these fishing boats come around that area. To um to to get their their fish to sell at markets the following day,
1: and you also are aware the enemy is using these for strategic purposes as well.
2: Absolutely, because but what we would do at night um, between us and we ended up because we were the big ship, we ended up taking charge of a of a lot of these smaller patrol boats, which were American patrol boats. But what we do at night, we would put ten of our sailors or, or the Americans put ten of theirs. And we'd actually drive these uh, rigid inflatables around doing a hearts and minds with all these fishing boats, checking the fishermen out to make sure they're there and keeping hearts and minds and keeping an eye for anyone suspicious uh, in amongst that flotilla of these fishing boats.
1: By April 24th, 2004, Campbell and his troops were settling into their mission, managing the movements of the Seahawks on the flight deck.
2: It was a routine patrol day, and uh, where We'd get up, prepare the aircraft, aircraft to go on a surveillance flight. So our Seahawk would be out there four hours and then went through the day. And then we, we settled in to do our normal afternoon patrol. Now, the afternoon patrol was when these dows started coming out. So we'd send them off for what we thought was a routine patrol. So the Americans um, off the USS Firebolt, they put their boat in the water. We still sat our aircraft up. But the USS Fireball put their boat in the water to do that um, on the on the water patrol. It's about a seven and a half metre rigid inflatable, so it's um, got the rigid hull. takes about ten people on it, including the the, the driver, um, with a like a stern drive type arrangement. Um, you see the police drive, riding around Sydney Harbour in it, and you see the army and and the whole heap of people using that. That's basically what it is with a whole heap of seats in front with their boarding parties on. As an aviation sailor, you, you tend to travel around the world backwards. Well, at this particular point, things started to happen. The ship turned a certain way and was facing a way that we we didn't know, so we started to, to, to talk about it and reports were coming in about this Dow that had um, exploded and you could see off in the distance um, smoke and that's when the ship went into action station. By that stage, we were preparing the flight deck because we got the call that the aircraft was going to land on, we're going to refuel it so it could go back out again. And then suddenly, I must have been, I reckon, about a uh, thousand yards away, give or take. We saw this boat flying through like a speedboat towards one of the um, one of the oil rigs, and suddenly it it exploded, just behind us. So something it got it to explode. And I, I said, to the boys, let's get ready. We've got to get inside here. That's when another one, which was about, oh, I reckon, six or seven hundred meters away, actually exploded. Um, right behind us. It didn't make it to the oil rigs, thankfully, but at that point, we actually felt the, the impact of that, that boat exploding behind us and our hangar door rattled. Um, you could feel it and that's when I said to the boys, get in the hangar now. And we went in there and that's when the ship went into action stations and we started our training come in where we, we set up our boards, we set up our damage control. We also had people ready to have the aircraft land on because we knew we needed to, to refuel it and get it back out there to do whatever we needed to do. The Seahawk was hovering over where the, the dow had exploded and the bodies were in the water. We had our air crewman who was a leading seaman. Um, he was in the water, our, our technical officer. Instead of staying in the front and, and operating the warfare side, he got in the back and started to operate the winch. So he could winch people out if need be. Um, so he did that. So once we established where that we we put our boat in the water and we could start getting bodies out, we got the aircraft back on we refuelled them and they went back out to do more patrols. Then they come and landed on because we knew there was going to be um, worse to come as we started bringing bodies on board. Darkness will complicate anything, even in a normal situation. We didn't know where our air crewman was. We'd actually lost him at some stage. So we, we were worried about that. And once again, because you have you no longer got visual, you're acting on someone who's up close giving reports back. Um, that complicates the whole situation. Also operating in the hangar because it goes dark, we've got to turn uh, red lights on, so it keeps our night vision to go out, and acting in night ag- adds a element of danger on top of what we've already got. Because once again, we don't know in the darkness what boats are going to uh, are aiming for that oil rig. We saw the two earlier because that was around dusk, but were there more? As soon as I they felt that explosion, and I, I walked inside, and you could see the. The eyes it changed in them. uh, It also changed the operational focus of the ship, even though we knew what it was like. And uh, that's where where that training we talked about way earlier about, where I saw everyone just do what they were supposed to do because we didn't have time to reflect until afterwards. There were seven who were um, were in various forms of um, being wounded. When we were um, bringing them in, Uh, Treating them, you could actually see which side they were looking because they might have been had their left side to the boat, and that would be the predominant side that where they had shrapnel from the wood because you had splintered wood. So two died instantly. Um, The one who was mortally wounded, um, that was a sad, a sad thing because we actually brought him into our hangar, and as we were bringing him our hangar, we were trying to hold him together, and um, and he died on us a number of times, and uh, it was just. The realism come in when his hand, his hand flopped out, and he had a wedding ring on. So that person suddenly become real. That's at the point where your training comes in, but you're also thinking, oh no, this is a real person. It's not a training. Thi- it's a, it's a real person. And once again, there was a change in that, and that was part of our talking to to my troops. Said it's up to you. you. You can be there to carry bodies wounded out to the out to the aircraft, or you can stand down. It's your choice. To their credit, they all did it. They all went in there. Um, and sadly, we got their fella ashore in Q8. Um, just started flying back as a dust storm come in, so thankfully for that. But sadly, we got the news back that he he died of his wounds. Regardless what goes on, I have that brief afterwards. And um, and that's where I had that, where, where I, I praised my troopies for doing what they did. Um I think that's important that um what they did was actually had some meaning to it I debriefed them on what happened with the fellow that went into q eight and things like that so they understood how are you feeling I was stuffed I was stuffed I was stuffed mentally um physically um a whole heap of things but i was still I was still running on adrenaline I think at that stage because i I went down I, it took me a while to get to to calm down I was still running on adrenaline uh I had the occasion where I had to walk off and just stop and breathe myself, but it was more that um, if they see your leader running, they start to panic. By the time we we landed our aircraft back on, finally, it was something like five o'clock in the morning, and we were actually we were booked in to do a um, dawn service for because it was ANZAC Day that that, that on the 25th, um, the following day, and we were actually I got all the boys wound up because that night we we're going to put the aircraft away at our normal. I think it was. Due to land on at seven o'clock that night or something. We're going to have an early night, we're going to get up and do um, the dawn service. And they still did a dawn service on the ship, but none of my boys, we were stuffed. We worked well beyond our hours that we're supposed to work and, and all those things. And, and I did not say a word, I just understood where they were coming from. September
1: 11, 2001 was a milestone for Indigenous soldier Lorraine Hatton.
0: I was actually in Canberra. My husband and I were getting ready to actually do, to go and live in America for two years. But when we saw that, it was like watching a movie. Did you think your service was going to change? I knew it was going to change. What happened next? After I had a two-year break with my husband over in America, we came back and I was posted to Battlefield Command Support Systems. I was instructing and teaching that to the, the rest of... Three Brigade in Townsville. After that posting, I was posted to Five Aviation Regiment on Ops Slipper with the aviation element once again.
1: Five years later, Lorraine was in Afghanistan.
0: I was the communications manager in Kandahar. It was an initial setup where we had uh, the installers come in and help set up all the technology for our satellite link back to Australia. Then we had to look after our codes, then it was liaising with other countries, uh, meeting with their communications people, because Kandahar base, it was the Americans that basically did the comms plan. So we had to get some of their equipment into our little area. So I'd have to liaise with the Americans and Canadians, sort of like our, our partners. We deployed in 2006, and we were sort of like the initial push into Kandahar to set up in 2006. We didn't actually have any um, infantry soldiers with us. Our mission was different because it was primarily focused on the aviation element of the Blackhawks. So it was the Blackhawks that went out and did the missions. But when we were deployed to Kandahar in, I think it was April, it was during the, the hot season. We used to have a lot of incoming RPGs, and it was pretty much every day. Somebody came up with the idea of, oh, let's create a, uh, a map of the, the base camp and let's put it into grid squares and we'll sell the squares for $2 a piece and if the RPG comes in and lands, then you win if it lands in your grid square. But if it lands and hurts somebody, well, then you don't win. There was a time I was sitting at some of the dongers and we were all there was a whole group of us and we're all sitting around talking and you heard the whistle come in. You heard the whistle of the RPG come in. And one of the funny things is like when you look at cartoons and you see the animals running on the spot, their legs are going, but they're not going anyway. That's sort of like the little funny moment I had of oops, it's dangerous, but you know, the funny side of it as you look at it. Yeah. Sometimes you look at things and you think, how can I? You know how something really dangerous could be happening but you're just, you try and make light of it because I know um, when I was over there some people um, didn't handle it very well and they had to go to um, like the doctor to help them sleep because When you slept, you slept, but you weren't asleep. As soon as you heard something, you were up, you were up and running. You can't drop the ball and you can't let the other people down because they're your family when you deploy. And it's really bad because I, I, I still have that now where I sleep, but I don't sleep. And I hear everything. I hear everything and, you know, Sometimes I have to take something to help me sleep because I just, I, I just haven't lost that edge of not hearing, if that makes sense.
1: I guess also people often say prior to war that they're fighting for queen and country, but when they get there and they're fighting alongside their fellows, they're fighting for each other.
0: That's right, they're fighting for their family. You can sometimes you can try and explain to the cows come home, but they will still not understand. It's very difficult to explain the connection and the bond and and what you've I suppose shared trauma is what it is.
1: You're hearing about and possibly seeing casualties, people dying. Um this is no longer war games, this is no longer marching up and down at Kapuka. This is real life. Can you explain
0: what that's like to people for people who haven't experienced it? You can try to explain, but I just don't think I could do it justice, like or really get to the truth of it. Because when I think back about my dad, you know, he didn't talk a lot about it. And and because it's very hard to talk about. You know, it's not—it's not an easy thing to say. Oh, you know, to talk about other people who have died in such tragic circumstances. It, I don't know. It just—you live with it. You respect them and honor them, but to convey how it feels, I think, is very hard.
1: David Nicholson, the former sailor turned Armoured Corps driver, was also in Afghanistan and was eager to do his duty. He and his comrades shared a sense of adventure and mateship
3: he'd not experienced in uniform before. We drove to a hut to go do our, you know, Tarenk out brief. And when they were running the scenario of when you hear this siren, jump to the ground, you got rockets coming in, Basically, when they pressed the the sound for it, uh, we got rocketed. (laughs) So we were just sitting there and then uh, we actually heard the blast and that was our little welcome to to country. That was our first ANTK and then um, we basically had just some briefs around there and then we moved out to our patrol base and got familiar with the surroundings of the patrol base we're living in. So I was a driver. I was a bushmaster driver and uh, lead vehicle uh, with the combat engineers. Tell us about the bushmaster. Ooh, it's a beautiful vehicle. She's ugly, but she's uh, she's sexy at the same time. (laughs) Uh, Absolute pack horse. Anyone that's been in one overseas is it's the best vehicle we've ever had. Um, It's saved countless lives. Yes. A tracked vehicle could go in different places, but for the job that it did, it was absolutely unbelievable. Because I recall at the time, the Americans
1: were quite envious of
3: our soldiers having the bushmasters. What were they in? Uh, so they were in buffaloes, which was big. Uh, what was that? Six wheeler. We did have an American corps on with us, um, uh, EOD guys. And they had a buffalo, and as soon as they got to our patrol base, we got rid of that and gave him one of our spare bushes, and they were in love. They actually wanted to give us their buffalo for our bushmaster, and we we're like, you can't do that. And they had a giggle and said, yeah, well we can. So can we do it? So sadly, they didn't get their uh, they didn't get their bushmaster, but they were, they were very happy to have it while they were with us.
1: The bushmaster had a particular design,
3: which was. Uh, which was perfect against IEDs. What was that? Uh, the V-shaped hull. So this, uh, that came from the South Africans during the, I believe, the Rhodesian War. I think out of all the IEDs that we had, I think we had one that penetrated the V-shaped hull. And it was uh, it was designed in Bendigo, Victoria. If I ever see Cosgrove, I, well, I'll have to give him a big hug and a thank you for uh, pushing that vehicle forward. I'm pushing the engineers and the and the grunts pretty pretty hard. We would obviously do all the mu- uh, vehicle moves with them, um, rolling SPFs and like the support by fires and overwatch positions, stuff like that. Um, and That's just on normal ops. Uh, so we we're at uh, patrol base Muszuzai. We lived up on Cav Hill, um, so we maintain overwatch for the, for the boys in the uh, base below us. You hit with IEDs four times personally. Uh, it was just such a regular occurrence. I believe there was some stats about how often you were you were you were going to get hit by one of these things. I can't remember the exact number, but it was in the I think it was in the mid sixties that we would either find one. Well, hitting one is finding one, I guess. <laughs> um, basically, of yeah, finding one every time we uh, we left the gates. We had a massive IED in our value. Um, Americans called it Badass Valley. We named it IED Alley. The saying was, mates don't let mates drive root whale, which was our route in uh Mirabad Valley. So we were going from Muzazai uh, to Patrol Base Wali, which was our main base for Combat Team Alpha. To get there, we had to go down, um, I think it was about a three finger hillside. Um, we went down the first one, crossed through the green zone, through the river, went up to the patrol base Wally, got our kit, turned around and nobody was there. And then um, we basically, I was asked which finger did we go up? I believe we went up the first one. Oh, I said the first one, but obviously on the way back, the first one is now the last one. So it was a bit of confusion, but... We, we uh, dialled it in and we uh, we started to turn right and my rear wheel uh, ended up collecting the uh, IED. It's just a, a big th- big thud and then you get uh, obviously jolted quite a bit. Um, I think uh, the vehicle landed, it was probably like five metres to the front and left. So we got lifted up pretty well in the, from the back end and then just Dust everywhere. Once everyone sort of uh, recognises what's what's happened, it's just a call out. Everyone okay? Pop green smoke if you're good. Pop red if you're bad. And then it's uh, debussing the the poor engineers. So they uh, they jump out and then they search the vehicle because they like to usually set up two IEDs. So they'll hit one and then they'll hope another vehicle will come in and um, they'll collect that one as well. And this was the first of four. Did it become almost commonplace, or was, was each one a particular incident that sticks in your mind? Um, well, I well, know these days I don't really to remember them, I've got to actually have a look at photos and, and videos and stuff. Um, but yeah, they sort of just mash into one now. For Kim Morgan Short, Air Force medic, her test of character
1: came in the form of a very public battle with the Air Force after the tragedy that took her husband, Anthony Short.
4: There was an exercise which involved England, Singapore, Malaysia and Australia and New Zealand. And it was related to uh, the ship's training for being attacked by uh, missiles. The F-111 was actually pretending to be a missile at the time and flying across uh, waters in the South China Sea, which is littered with high mountains and mobile oil rigs. And unfortunately, uh, they missed an island on the radar. And uh, as my late husband Shorty was pulling up, uh, a branch impacted the cockpit, which clearly disabled the pilot and the navigator, and uh, they flew up into the air like a Roman candle and the aircraft fell out of the sky and landed back on the island. I didn't get a call. I was in bed uh, in this incongruous uh, outfit of shiny pink satin pyjamas, which sticks in my mind because I had a knock on the door at 3.30 in the morning And as I turned on the light uh, outside, through the glass in the front door, I saw blue. And for a military wife, that only means one thing. It's a policeman or an Air Force person standing outside the front of your door. And I almost didn't want to open the door because I knew what it meant. So I opened the door and the officer commanding in his uniform and hat was there and the chaplain in his uniform and hat was there. And I instantly, instantly knew what it meant. Myself and the navigator's widow insisted on attending the board of inquiry. And it wasn't always thus. Uh, Widows didn't always get invited, but we insisted on going. And it was quite contentious. However, the board of inquiry did actually find out what went wrong. And there were quite a few things uh, that were organisational failures for sure. And there was... A very last-minute failure on on one of the air crew's uh, behalf, and but you know the classic Swiss cheese model, and so the board of inquiry actually found all of that out. It was what they released publicly that I objected to, and the media's interpretation of what they released publicly, because uh, the media doesn't have a clue. They can't distinguish between pilot and what was then known as navigator. Uh, the front page of papers all around Australia was like pilot error, which it wasn't. And I just saw red. I thought, no, this isn't this isn't right. I'm not going to allow this to go on. So at some point, I ended up approaching the Queensland coroner because in those days uh, a coronial inquest was not mandatory, and the Air Force had said they didn't want a coronial inquest, and because I'd bought Shorty's body back from Malaysia and interred him in Queensland, I actually had a right to ask the Queensland coroner to do an inquest. So I did. And the Queensland coroner took it on. And there was great fuss, great hullabaloo. And there was a lot of military lawyers all facing off against me. And I was there on my own, uh, in a coronial inquest, sitting by myself on one side I remember feeling it was one of the worst things I've ever been in where um, a whole bunch of Queen's Council walked down on the other side. They had unlimited funds. And I thought, oh, my God, this is actually me against them when it shouldn't be because I'm part of you. I ended up getting a lawyer who had represented uh, some of the families in the West Australia fire, which was a big fire on a Navy ship. And he was fantastic and really uh, moved things along for me until the Queensland government sacked the Queensland coroner and then the new coroner wouldn't take on the case. So we were halfway through a coronial inquest when the Queensland coroner got sacked. I actually did give up. I packed up and moved my kids to Ireland. I took a job in Ireland. I said, "I'm, I'm done. I've had enough I can't bear it anymore. I sold everything I own. I sold my house, my car. I took a job as a doctor in rural Ireland and packed the children up and left.
1: In episode four of Up Close, our veterans talk about the support they had during their overseas deployments and when they came home. Up Close Conversations with Modern Veterans is a listener production in association with the Australian War Memorial. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Executive producer is Todd Stevens. Audio production by Ed Gooden and Link Kelly. Listener.